welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Kate Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. The COVID-19 pandemic eroded trust between many Americans in the healthcare system. During the height of the pandemic, only about half of the U.S. population received a COVID vaccine, and only 60% favored and followed masking mandates. This resistance to public health guidance follows a long history of American skepticism about medicine. In fact, as our guest today will tell us, mistrust in medicine is not new at all. Professor Lewis Grossman is on a mission to understand the causes of this American health libertarianism. He's a professor of law at the Washington College of Law, where he teaches and writes in the areas of American legal history, food and drug law, health law, and civil procedure. In 2021, he published a book, Choosing Your Medicine, A Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America, which examines how persisting notions of medical freedom and the right to your own health have affected American policy from the revolution through the Trump era. His conclusions may surprise you. Welcome, Lewis, if I may call you Lewis, to turn on the lights. We're really glad to have you with us. I must say many of our guests in healthcare uh, come from the healthcare world, physicians, people in healthcare management. You are coming out of the world of law and legal scholarship. And we're very anxious to hear your views from your ongoing work in healthcare from that platform. I think maybe we can start with your recent book, Choose Your Medicine interesting, an interesting unlayering of the history of the, the, the way in which patients are empowered or not in healthcare. But could you say a few words about your book first and sort of especially things that surprised you, intrigued you in your research, and then will take us down a couple of different avenues? Sure. Thank you. And, and thank you for having me uh, on this wonderful podcast. I'm a PhD historian as well as a lawyer, and I approach this project as, as both a historian and as an attorney. And I've been interested for a long time in social movements and legal efforts to ensure that people can get access to any type of treatment they want, despite any government interference in that choice. Now, this obviously overlaps with issues concerning resistant to compelled treatment like vaccines but I was really focusing on what I thought was an underexamined through line in American history of a fierce dedication to the notion that patients should be able to access whatever kind of doctor they want and whatever kind of treatment they want and whatever kind of drug they want. And this has come up very relevantly in some very important cases where patients have demanded access to drugs that the federal government has said that they can't have access to. And the relevant test for whether they have a constitutional right to access those treatments specifically asks, is that right deeply rooted in this country's history and tradition? So I said, okay, let's examine the country's history and tradition about this topic. And after reading a lot of original sources that far transcend statutes and judicial opinions, I concluded that throughout American history, 
a large swath of the population has thought that they have a constitutional right to access whatever kind of drug they want to access. There is one period of our history where that wasn't so true, and that was the middle of the 20th century. And some people like me are old enough to have been shaped by that attitude of trust in medicine and wonder at the accomplishments of orthodox medicine and trust in government and trust in regulators. What I realized when I did my research is that this was an anomalous period in American history, and we've kind of been departing from that ever since. And when you look at the rhetoric during the COVID pandemic and the medical freedom activism, it is in many ways to me a reversion to the norm in American history rather than the country going off the rails. So you're saying that the idea of trust in medicine and trust the doctor is, was the exception and the, for a larger part of history, it's been a different ethos? What ethos? So I'm not arguing that there haven't always been lots of people who trusted medicine and trusted their doctors. But what I'm arguing is that the extreme level of trust in the medical establishment that existed in the middle of the 20th century until the 1970s was anomalous. And that for most of American history, a large portion of Americans have doubted the efficacy of orthodox medicine. And may I add, with some justification during the 19th century, when orthodox medicine didn't really have any greater claim to effectiveness than its uh, rivals, um, but also a view of, of the medical establishment as a freedom-suppressing, rights-stripping, despotic, tyrannical even establishment that had designs to prevent people from visiting any kinds of doctors that weren't orthodox regular doctors or taking any kind of medicine that wasn't an orthodox therapy. And when did this change? When did this, when was this period of extreme trust then? There's a difference from that past. And what was it about that time that made it different? I think that one thing that led to this period of trust was actual and in sometimes, in some cases, dramatic, undeniable advances in scientific therapy and the modern research methods. Most obviously, the rise of modern antibiotics as well as the polio vaccine, as well as many other quote-unquote wonder drugs. And I also think that the United States came out of World War II with a surge of optimism, a surge of trust in the ability of our establishment institutions to accomplish great things when they work together. And don't forget that medicine actually played a large role in protecting our forces during World War II, not just in terms of sewing up wounds and things like that, but modern antibiotic. And so I often think of the dramatic contrast between the public's reception to Jonas Salk, the inventor of the polio vaccine in the 1950s, who was valorized, who is a, a hero. hero, 
And in fact, I, I did a little bit of kind of goofy research on Google Engram and determined that he was as popular as the movie star James Dean or the baseball star Mickey Mantle. And there was an incredible amount of trust in the polio vaccine process itself so that millions of Americans participated in the trials and or in the actual voluntary administration of the vaccine when it was rolled out in the mid-1950s. How broad-based was that level of trust? I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, the United States is not a monolith. Right. There are lots of different social strata and communities within this great nation of ours. How true was that across the board? Do you have a sense well, of that? Or was it Sure, sure. Yeah. I do have a sense of it because there has been a question that has been asked year after year since the middle of the 20th century in polls, which is how much do you trust the leaders of the medical establishment to do the right thing? Yeah. And I want to point out that's not how much do you trust your individual doctor. It's how much you trust the medical establishment. As late as 1966, 73% of Americans answered they were highly confident in the medical establishment to do the right thing. Whereas mm -hmm. by 1980, that number had plummeted to something like 30%. So the inflection decade was the 1970s. And in fact, I'm currently working a book on a book about uh, the decline of trust in the medical establishment in the 1970s uh, in all of its different aspects. And what do you think about, without giving away the punchline of your forthcoming book, I have to ask you what some of your conclusions are, what happened in the 70s that led to what you're characterizing as a reversion to the norm uh, of not really trusting the medical establishment and, and, and so on. The 1970s, in particular, the early 1970s, were an era marked by the disaster in Vietnam, by stagflation, which is the combination of inflation and recession that was plaguing the country with a plummeting level of trust in our major institutions for a variety of reasons. And science and medicine took a hit along with other major institutions. And don't forget that after people associated medicine and science with the triumph of World War II, they also realized that these very same institutions were unable to get us out of the morass in Vietnam. There was also the oil embargo. There was just a huge plummeting of confidence in the American population. And I think that there were a couple of signal moments that really hurt medicine itself. The one that I think was particularly potent was the swine flu vaccine fiasco in 1976, where the entire medical establishment working with the Ford administration committed itself to vaccinating the entire American population against a forthcoming deadly swine flu. And that pandemic never emerged. And Predictably, some people died of Guillain-Barre syndrome from getting the vaccinations, and the Ford administration retreated with its tail between its legs, and both liberals and conservatives completely trashed 
the administration for their handling of this situation. I do want to say one thing before I forget, which is even at its peak of confidence in the 1950s and 60s, this is going back to something you asked me before, there were doubters, there were cynics. And indeed, I've done a lot of research on the people who uh, supported, for example, quack cancer remedies in the 1950s and 60s. They tended to be right-wing conspiracy mongers. Uh, they were highly associated with highly reactionary politics, in some instances, even anti-Semitic politics. What happened in the 1970s is that skepticism and cynicism about the American medical establishment both went mainstream and went bipartisan. Does this track with political, so you're describing a series of political macro events, the war in Vietnam, the stagflation, the oil crisis, et cetera. Does, in your view, and you also describe it in the period of increased trust in medicine, uh, a lot of other externalities like the, the, the confidence post-World War II of the nation in general. Uh, does actually, does trust in healthcare actually broadly just track with trust in all major institutions? Is there something exceptional about healthcare or is it just mirroring everything else uh, that we have? It's a great question. And the pollsters who ask about Americans' trust in the medical establishment and the scientific establishment in the very same polls ask about their level of trust in the military, in the federal government, and in other major institutions. And what is striking is that al although these the levels of trust are not always the same for all these major institutions, they definitely seem to rise and fall together. And one of the crises of our country right now is that our the American people as a whole have such limited trust in our major institutions, including the medical establishment. Can we focus that lens down on science itself. Healthcare professionals are trained in a self-image of using evidence. We have evidence-based medicine, which means when we do drug or not, it should be based on very well-designed and publicly vetted and peer-reviewed clinical trials. And yet we hear a lot of debate and a lot of concern in the pundit press about people losing trust in science itself. So is it medicine and science together, or is there some questioning of really the scientific tradition that, that's afoot. People are not trusting science, trusting the idea that we grow knowledge through systematic research. Yeah. So I think it, it transcends distrust in medicine and extends to the scientific method itself. And people working within the medical establishment think of the adequate and well-controlled trial as the gold standard for determining whether a drug works or not. But in the context of the pandemic, um, you saw vaccines who, which even though they were approved subject to emergency use authorizations, actually had a pretty good scientific basis by the time they were released in adequate and well-controlled trials. You saw them widely rejected by many Americans, not all, not even close to all, but many. And meanwhile, you had drugs like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which were 
approved in adequate, well-controlled clinical trials for other uses, but there was no clinical evidence whatsoever other than anecdotal evidence that they worked for um, COVID. And yet there was this rage, uh, at least in part of our political spectrum, for uh, obtaining and using those drugs, even in the absence of that scientific proof. So let's go back to your book. Are you making the case in your book about people getting access to whatever they want? That includes access to things that have no scientific basis, no formal scientific basis at all. Where, how are you thinking about the normative side of this, about, about the balance between people getting whatever they wish to get and the value of having a scientific discipline behind those choices? Well, let me say that in, the, in my examination of the modern era, I focus both on issues of getting access to orthodox conventional medicines more easily and earlier than FDA traditionally allowed. So this is not just a matter of people gaining access to drugs for which there is zero evidence of efficacy, but also movements for people, movements in which people are attempting, like AIDS activists in the uh, 1980s, to get access to drugs when there is less evidence of their efficacy than was traditionally required before it could be released onto the market. But there's also another long tradition in America, people gaining access to drugs for which there is no conventional scientific proof of efficacy whatsoever. The, the alternative medicine community is an example of this in many instances. There's very little controlled clinical evidence supporting the efficacy of most alternative medicine, with the exception of acupuncture for some uses. Are you asking me what my position is regarding access to these things? I'd like to know if you're willing to, sh to share it and also what the, yeah. what the foundational logic behind your position, whatever it is. Yeah. I tend to side uh, when it comes to alternative medicines that don't present a harm to the patient. I tend to lean toward, and this is a little surprising to me, toward a more libertarian position. I also tend to lean that way when it comes to providing early access, pre-approval access to drugs. But huge caveat, I am a, a fierce uh, embracer of the scientific method and of controlled clinical medical investigations. And to the degree that permitting widespread access to a drug before the clinical studies are done would threaten the ability of researchers to complete clinical research by diverting people away from clinical research, I think that's an extraordinary problem. And so I don't mean to suggest here that if you want to know, in my personal life, I am a user of conventional medicine and not a user of alternative medicine. But I also am a little bit of a choice maximizer, I would say, when it comes to at least low harm alternatives. Is this era, which you say is more normal than the era of trust, such now that this that 
that using the scientific method as the basis for action in healthcare is actually threatened and unlikely to recover? That, that will public, do you believe public mistrust of the scientific method is large enough to undercut the vitality of science itself? How, how much at risk are we? I think that you don't have to fear an abandonment of the scientific method altogether. But I think what you are seeing is the scientific method both being reconsidered in various ways in the medical sphere and running up against some serious limitations. It's being reconsidered in, in the fact that FDA and Congress and others are calling for more and more consideration of real-world evidence and other sources of evidence to at least supplement, if not replace, the controlled clinical trial. It's running into challenges in the sense that as medicine becomes more and more personalized and diseases become more and more orphanized, that is defined in ways that include fewer people, using traditional clinical trials to support the approval of drugs is going to become more and more challenging. Now, of course, the opposite of that isn't a rejection of the clinical method, but it does call for an embrace of alternatives to the traditional adequate and well-controlled clinical trial. You know, it's funny, it, this is an interesting conversation because, Don, you and I both been on record arguing in many cases that the randomized controlled study design, which is the gold standard study design for proof of efficacy of a drug, is perhaps the wrong study design and study concept or evidentiary threshold for understanding whether a program, for example, HIV treatment program, can be scaled to a whole country. And just as an example, there's probably other ways of understanding that. I don't think that either of us, Don, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm curious what you'd say to this. I don't think either of us would argue that evidence of effectiveness isn't important, but whether you're using a randomized study and a controlled design in the way that we that is often held up as the only way to do things, that does seem like a problem. Yeah. Huh. It's a highly controversial point in the academic communities that you and I deal with, Kedar. The randomized clinical trial has achieved a kind of royal status. It's the way to know. And it is a magnificent achievement It's as a study design. The problem is when we're trying to make improvements, Lewis, in very complex environments, the technology of the randomized trial just doesn't apply. It's not the way you can learn. And what I believe, and I think Hader believes, that there are other disciplined ways to learn. So to me, the choice is not between science and non-science. It's an expansion of our portfolio of scientific methods, which mean disciplined, informative, secure methods. There is a boundary at which simple belief is used as the decision rule. And there, I must admit to some confusion, Lewis. I just came back from Australia. And I had the privilege of just spending some time with some members of the Aboriginal groups, uh, the indigenous groups there. And we talked a lot about this, about knowledge, what knowing really is. And they're very confident that there are ways to know that we in our Western traditions don't pick up, that we just we're not tuned in and therefore give up some knowledge. That's a slippery slope. I don't mean to. What do you think? Let me say that throughout American history, 
medicine and freedom of choice in medicine has been closely linked rhetorically and in some instances actually with freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. I mean, this is most obviously true when it comes to alternative medical approaches, Christian science and the new thought movement in the late 19th century. But even outside those areas where it's spiritually infused medical systems, there's always been a surprising amount of demand for epistemological freedom when it comes to medical freedom. The notion that we have ways of knowing that are different from your ways of knowing, and it is in some ways violating our essential, even religious freedom to uh, deny us that choice. I wanted to say one other thing about questions about the adequate and well-controlled clinical trial. It raises questions not just of the best ways to gather knowledge scientifically, but it also runs up against the tradition of freedom of medical choice in America. Because if you think about what an adequate and well-controlled trial is, you are telling, let's say it's a two-arm trial, you are telling half the people, but they don't even know which half, that they do not have access to the new therapy. They are instead getting a placebo or an active control of some sort. And this is where the AIDS movement had real problems with the adequate and well-controlled clinical trial because they thought that they had a constitutional right to try anything necessary to save their lives. And if they could only access a drug through an adequate controlled clinical trial, then they thought that their essential power of choice was being denied. But I will say, Don, that there's also an interesting start of the discussion about ways that the clinical trial, the adequate, well-controlled clinical trial method could be improved as a scientific matter, as well as an ethical matter, by, by administering the drug in different ways to different populations and things like that. Exploring different designs, absolutely. Do you think the medical profession is in part account- responsible for this, I'll, I'll say, reversion to the normal mistrust? Is it, or maybe the positive way of framing it, is there something that you would counsel the professions and the guilds to do differently if they want to build uh, public trust? Are we screwing up here? I'm the son of a doctor and brother of a doctor. And so I like doctors and I tend to be charitable toward them. But to the extent that there is an almost spiteful dismissiveness of alternative worldviews that some doctors express, it's certainly not helping with the public in general. But that being said, I think that they are running up against social forces that are almost unconquerable. Because when I listened to Anthony Fauci during the pandemic, I agreed with most of what he was saying. And I'm glad he was saying it the way he was saying it, with some notable exceptions about saving masks and things like that. But 
But yet, a bunch of people thought he was a villain for talking that way. So I really don't have great advice for the medical profession. I think that they're just up against historical forces that are hard to resist. Well, but you're giving us some guidance. I mean, I, I think I hear what you're saying. Maybe I'm overinterpreting this, Lewis. But I think I hear you saying, give your patient or your the family member or whoever is sitting in front of you a chance to at least share their perspective with you, not necessarily immediately judging the words that come out of their mouth. Give them a chance to say what they're thinking and perhaps work with them from that established point of view towards a different understanding of what is, what at least your understanding is as an expert clinician's, your point of view of the facts versus your patient's point of view of the facts, which are presumably different starting points when you disagree. I also think that in our system, doctors aren't being given enough time with patients to really have those conversations or to explain the scientific evidence that supports various orthodox therapies that they are choosing or to explain why the scientific method dictates that they should choose one therapy versus another therapy. And maybe as a result of that, I think that there's lots of physicians out there who don't really understand or don't take it upon themselves to really understand the scientific evidence behind the drugs they're prescribing. And this is not confidence instilling. Your book is about therapeutic choice and the freedom to choose, but there it's not always the case that we have the freedom to choose. In fact, there are certain medications, and one that I know that you're working on right now, Mifepristone, in which there are parts of our society that are arguing against the freedom to choose to use Mifepristone. I wanted to hear or dive into a little bit where it appears that we are arguing against freedom of choice with regards to a particular therapeutic. And maybe Mifepristone is a good one to talk about. Let me say that every time there has been a social movement in favor of freedom of choice in America, it has been triggered by a government action intended to restrict choice. And so that the very fact that there are choice-restricting statutes maybe is not the right thing to be looking at here. Maybe the right thing to be looking at here is that Ohio, an increasingly red state, overwhelmingly voted to instantiate the right to choose in its constitution. A few we weeks just don't ago. like having limitations placed upon right. us any kind. But, you know, what's interesting is I examined in my book about how Roe v. Wade was in many ways a medical freedom opinion. And for a while, it was being applied as a medical freedom opinion. It was being applied by judges to defend the right to medical access, medical marijuana, to access acupuncture, to access Laetrile, which was a ineffective alternative cancer therapy in the 1970s. And it was never just a medical opinion. And therefore, I think Mifepristone raises complicated constellation of issues that transcend those that apply to just a cancer medication. But that being said, despite all of the moral and religious objections to abortion, it's striking to me that Kansas and now Ohio 
are pushing back against those restrictions. The women's health movement was a very important player in the rise of modern freedom of therapeutic choice advocacy. And it seems to me that they are starting to play that role again. You're a a double, if not a triple threat here, a lawyer, historian, and now health policy uh, expert. Let's go to the policy side for some of the few minutes we have left. In order to get to the place where you'd like to see us get to, and I'll guess that you don't want to see slide into kind of darkness with respect to the professions or the use of science and evidence, what policy changes are you now recommending? I've heard you say a couple of things about FDA processes. Is there a short list of things you'd like to see us change? When you say see you change, I don't know who. See the United States, is. either federal government or, or state governments, I guess, such as the one I picked up on already is you think the processes of the FDA are slow and cumbersome enough as to begin to make people feel that they don't have choice, they can't get access to what really might help them, if I can risk putting some words in your mouth. And you sort of are, because FDA is not the barrier to access it it once was. A tremendous amount of drugs are now approved with only one adequate control clinical trial, not two. Sometimes they are not even phase three trials. Sometimes they're not even well-controlled trials. And I don't really think that FDA is the obstacle to access to medicine that it may have been in the 1970s. So I guess, so I, I'm curious, and just to follow on Don's question here, Lewis, from your perspective, having looked at these questions in, in great detail now, what do you think would be the best way to preserve the integrity of the scientific community and its voice and its ability to produce good science, but also enable us to regain the trust of the broader public and do so in a way that allows the best possible medications and therapeutics to get to people who need it the most? What would be the, in the environment, what do you think would enable us to actually get to some of these, some of these goals? perhaps all at once or together or in some combination, since it seems like that's what we need to get to. I mean, it's a tough mission. Let me say that, as I said before, the surge in confidence in the middle of the 20th century was due in part to a couple of really dramatic, practical advancements in (laughs) medicine. So a new miracle cure would go a long way toward we just had risk. one. We had a COVID vaccine. Well, that was, but it's interesting. It's, that is a miracle preventative, not a miracle cure. And I think it's harder for people to celebrate not having gotten something than it is <laughs> to enough. celebrate being cured uh, of something. And I think to some degree, cancer continues to be the real tricky thing here. Progress against cancer is slow. So many people lose relatives to cancer, feel helpless when they get cancer. And of course, cancer, as I don't have to tell you guys, you should tell me, it's not just one simple disease. It's not going to be cured with the invention of a single pill or procedure. But that being said, um, some kind of really dramatic medical breakthrough would go a long way to helping restore confidence in the medical profession. But 
that's a very hard thing to depend yeah. on. Wait, um, one thing you haven't mentioned uh, is money. Greed. I mean, uh, it, again, put words in your mouth, but I mean, if you ask me without having read your book uh, or listened to your historiography saying, why has this down, why have we gone down in, in trust? It's because people are getting very rich in healthcare, drug companies raising prices, insurance companies playing games and earning immense profit margins, physicians arguing all the time for more pay, hospitals consolidating, controlling markets. I don't know if that knowledge reaches the average citizen in our country, but I think it probably does at some level. So is that one of the drivers of this loss of trust or not? Is there something going on about suspicion because of concentration of wealth? I don't know whether there's a focused bitterness toward individual practicing physicians on that basis. There may be. I'm quite confident there is toward pharmaceutical companies. I see it all the time. And I'm quite confident there is toward insurers as well. But here's the rub. I have a chapter in my book called Freedom to be Reimbursed. And it talks about Avastin, which was a cancer drug. And it was originally approved on an accelerated basis for breast cancer, as well as a couple of other cancers. And FDA withdrew approval based on follow-up studies for breast cancer. And there was a hearing about whether or not FDA should do that or not. And people were appearing at that hearing and talking about this FDA tyranny, even thinking about removing uh, access to Avastin for breast cancer. But they weren't removing access to Avastin for breast cancer because it was still available to be prescribed off-label because it was approved for other cancers. What they were really complaining about was that their government or private insurers would no longer cover it, which itself was not even necessarily true. But on the one hand, you have people complaining about the price of drugs and so forth. But on the other hand, you have it's so baked into our system now that somebody should be reimbursing you for what you want, that there's this kind of cognitive dissonance between a dislike for big government on the one hand and rich corporations on the other hand, but then on the flip side, a demand that people should be able to not just access, but be reimbursed for any drug they want. I don't know how coherent a story I just told, but it is yet another obstacle to solving the problems in our country because we have this strange phenomenon where the conservative part of our political spectrum cries rationing and death panels when reimbursement for particular treatments is denied. And they're the small government people. So if I'm sounding pessimistic, I am. As it turns out, that is our typical last question in this conversation. To ask our guests about optimism or pessimism, you may have just answered it uh, there with where you rate on the scale here. But 
Any final thoughts for us as we the final treasure? No real final thoughts, except I want to wish everybody who's listening a happy Thanksgiving if this airs before Thanksgiving <laughs> and a joyous holiday season. And I really enjoyed talking to you and appreciate having been invited. It's a pleasure to have this time together. It's a real thrill. You've taken us into, you've reminded us in many ways that we have to, we're in a period of limited trust. We had a spell of more trust for a period, back to a period of more limited trust. And uh, I hope in someday there'll be another horizon of greater trust in the future, but although, you've given us a bit of clues as to how to get there. Although trust in the right thing. In the right thing, indeed. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so you. much, Lewis. Thank you. That will uh, take this out. Thank you so much. That was Thank you. That was great. Any reactions to, uh, to what we heard? I'm a historian myself, so I love hearing historians talk about what they've been studying and what comes by. I love the fact that he offers us a really kind of interesting uh, trajectory. I think we think of the misinformation, distrust, mistrust kind of phenomenon in medicine as being a very recent phenomenon, something even that even as recently as the last two years with the pandemic or two or three years. But Lewis puts this into perspective. He says that for basically 100 years before the 1950s, the 1940s, 1950s, that's how it was. Medicine really didn't have the faith or confidence of most of the public. It was a pretty, it was pretty much a cottage industry. It didn't have, there wasn't a lot of grounds for ensuring that kind of trust. We had a, a, a period, a window of time between the 1940s and 1970s where there was very high rates of, uh, of trust, which parallel almost every major institutional relationship and government relationship. And then a steady decline that preceded the pandemic and recent issues by decade, by a generation. And so I think that perspective is very valuable as we think about what we're up against and what we're trying to deal with. We're not simply trying to battle vaccine misinformation. It's actually a 30, 40 year history of steadily declining trust that needs a much broader solution set than simply a public relations campaign for the vaccine. Scary thought to me is, are we on the edge of some kind of precipice here in which it will be very hard for a long period of time? to recover trust in not just medicine, but in science itself. I mean, I, and then of course, I have to question my own thinking here. I come from that era of trust. I believe deeply in the value of science for healing humanity, but I've got to find a way to think through this loss of trust and why it's been there. Well, I think it's kind of interesting is that there have been, one of the things he says is what we could do to restore confidence would be a break, right? And yes, I somewhat exasperated or upset. We just had one that yeah. that saved countless millions of lives. And I actually believe that we've had, we've got a cure for hepatitis C. Like we have a, a cure on the horizon for sickle cell disease. Yep. We have cancer therapies that have extended uh, survival and remission in cancer. We may not have quote unquote cured cancer, but for many cancers, they're effectively cured now. And uh, I believe the trajectory in survival and longevity for, with heart disease is much, much improved. Uh, incredible, incredible. So it's, it, we have had numerous breakthroughs in clinical medicine, and I don't know if that alone is enough. I, I don't buy that, that alone is enough. There's something else that needs to take place for us to restore the confidence and faith of, our, of the public in medicine and healthcare yeah. today. We didn't it's not, get just, into it's the, not enough just to have a break. We didn't get deeply into the political polarization issue, but there does appear to be a 
a political divide around attitudes towards science. So we've got a lot more to, a lot more to learn. I commend Lewis very much for his historic view, taking us back and really looking at the data about the trajectory, and it's going to certainly inform my thinking. I wonder, Don, one thing that we didn't talk about, just considering that we've had other folks on the program before, but the advent of tools like artificial intelligence that allow us to create new, I think in some ways, maybe novel breakthroughs. We've been maybe not analog, but digital in, in the approach to discovery put that onto the steroids that I know that artificial yep. intelligence will allow, maybe the pace of change accelerates to a place where it, we can restore some level of confidence and yeah, trust. Some too. of the breakthroughs come from a, d- a different, a new place, you're saying. A new, different place. Yeah, exactly. We'll see. Thanks a lot, Kater. Thank you. The Turn On The Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn On The Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn On The Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.